Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Tuesday morning, Tuesday morning the, 14th the 14th of December. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. Uh, another eight cases of uh, the Omicron variant of uh, COVID-19 were confirmed yesterday. It brings the total number of confirmed cases to 18 now. The Chief Medical Officer says, however, that the actual numbers of Omicron cases is in fact much higher. In a statement last night, Dr Tony Houlihan said it is estimated that 11% of cases are now due to the Omicron variant. That is an increase from less than 1% only one week ago. The CMO said while evidence on disease severity and immune escape is still emerging, it is clear this variant is more transmissible. We are hoping for the best, he said, while preparing for the worst. The Irish Times reports today that health sources say there is a growing expectation in hospitals that they will be hit with a new wave of infections and are said to be clearing out patients where possible in anticipation of an influx of COVID patients. A ramping up of the booster programme is now being planned and the gap between the second and booster vaccine is cut from six to three months. Let's uh, talk to Anthony Staines, Professor of Health Systems in uh, the School of Nursing in DCU and spokesperson for ISAJG, the Independent Scientific Advocacy Group. Good morning to you, Professor Staines. Once again, thanks for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. Uh, there's a, a lot to base this concern of uh, uh, on, especially when you look at what's happening in the UK. Uh, in Denmark, uh, where it's set to become uh, the dominant strain by tomorrow, and in, in Norway, where they say they're facing up to 300,000 uh, infections on a daily basis. It's very worrying, and it's, it is likely that this strain will become dominant here probably very quickly. What's not clear is whether the case numbers will go up substantially from where they are now, which is around 4,500 a day. But it would be foolish not to assume that that might well happen and to get prepared for it and get ready for it. The consequences will be, first of all, a significant number of people will get sick. Uh, We don't know yet what the risks of long COVID are with the Omicron strain, but there's no special reason to suppose they're any much different from that with other versions of the virus. Uh, 
and a proportion of people will end up in hospital. And it's the nature of, of the timings and all of this. You know, people who are infected today start hitting the hospital system about um, Christmas week, towards the end of the week. And uh, as the number of cases rises, the number of hospitalizations rises. Now, we have a hospital system that, in all honesty, is on its knees, with waiting lists going through the roof everywhere for almost everything. Um, it's very hard to see this ending well. And it's something that the government was warned about repeatedly, that global governments were warned about mm. repeatedly, that there would be new variants of this. And the to still, the only strategy we know to prevent new variants is global vaccination, to reduce the case numbers globally. And we haven't done that. But there's large swathes of the world where only a few percent of the population are vaccinated. But COVID is occurring at a high rate. If a disease from Omicron is mild in South Africa, does that mean that it's going to be mild here? Or is it different? Uh, because uh, we're talking about a, a very different scenario where uh, quite a, a lot of the people who've uh, developed Omicron uh, had COVID already or, or weren't vaccinated. It's very hard to compare. The South African population is younger than ours and less well vaccinated. And that, that kind of goes both goes two ways. They, they vaccinated a lot of their older people, but not so many of the younger people. The evidence from Denmark at the moment is not consoling it. It looks as if hospitalisation rates for Omicron may be higher than they are for Delta. Um, but it's, it's, we're not going to know this definitely for another couple of weeks. And we're not going to know how that plays out here probably till the end of the month. And we just have to be ready for whatever this virus throws at us. You know, this is the consequence of allowing 4,000 infections a day. We, we've made a policy decision to live with the virus at this level and not to do anything particular to bring the numbers down. And now we're going to pay for that, unfortunately. OK, what about the vaccines? Outside of the boosters, can people feel protected if they haven't had a booster? And can they feel protected then if they have had a booster? I think the evidence on the vaccines is that Omicron has useful protection from the existing vaccines. So if you're if you're vaccinated, your risk of getting seriously ill fall, is quite low. Not not zero by any means, but quite low. And that's great because that's if we didn't have the vaccines now, we our hospitals would would be broken. There would be people trying to be ventilated in corridors. Uh, it would be a disaster of unimaginable proportions. And Omicron would just make that worse. But we do the vaccines. So that all these terrible things are not going to happen. But we we have enough people being hospitalized, even with even with vaccinations, even with boosters. There are there are quite a lot of cases of Omicron in people who've had boosters. And it's not a hundred percent clear how that will play out in our country. But again, in, in Denmark, it looks as if that's a significant problem. So we just have to wait and see. We, we, we really have to take every precaution we can, and clearly boosters is one of those precautions. But, it, you know, we've, we've had this idea that the vaccines will fix it or the boosters will fix it or antigen tests will fix it or masks will fix it. None of these things on their own will fix it. This really is about doing... Uh, something we have not yet done in this country and something we haven't done in, in quite a few European countries. I mean, we're not alone in this. 
but taking a very serious public health response to this, trying to control case numbers, keeping restrictions, keeping closures to the absolute minimum and using them as the last option. But if we do close things down, to use the time we gain by closing things down to bring cases under control. And that's been the, that's been the strategy WHO advised since March of 2020. Um, and, you know, we, we haven't done it, so maybe we could think about doing it now. But, but we, we're still not taking it seriously. I don't know if you saw the 72 million that the Department of Education has provided for schools, mm. uh, which is a good thing. But the advice that went with it is laughable. You know, the, the advice, it's about ventilation, and it says, here's 72 millions for the small works process, which is a slow, cumbersome process internal to the department, uh, but at least it's faster than their other processes. You can use it to buy HEPA filters, but we're not going to advise you on what filters you might get. We're not going to uh, tell you what, we're not going to give you a coherent guide to what you actually need. So the, the advice is not couched at a level that makes sense to schools. And the level of ventilation we recommend is still too high. They're still recommending filtration and ventilation only if the CO2 level is over 1,000. And that, that is way too high. So we're not taking it seriously. A serious programme would have started in August, but should, should start now and should say something like, for every, every school in the country, let us know by the end of next month, next week, how many have the filters you need. Here's how you work it out. Deliveries start January Second, mm. that's how, how you should do it, and that's how it was done in other countries. So we're not we're we're still we're still kind of play acting at, at controlling this. Okay, and um, you know the consequences of that could not could be very unpleasant. And you're looking on this as potentially dangerous that can cause severe illness and death uh, and. What we do know, I think uh, there's no doubt, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is very transmissible. And when it gets hold, it seems to really take hold. And it it seems from the experience in Denmark and the UK and elsewhere that cases double daily. That that may be an an artefact of how we're detecting cases, but there's no doubt at all that this thing spreads fast. And it it, it goes through vaccination, it breaks through vaccination. So the balance, which of those is, is the reality, which of those is the main driver, it doesn't actually matter all that much. What mm. matters is the case numbers will go up and go up sharply. And the vaccines reduce risk. So if, if I, I'm a 61-year-old with, who's had a transplant, and I probably have about a 10% risk of dying if I got COVID without vaccination. With vaccination, that probably falls to under 1%, which is a huge win from my point of view mm. but it's still 1% and there's a lot of people in the country who are you know, variously immunosuppressed on various medications, have had cancer have complex illness uh, say chron- you, know, you might have diabetes, you might have some chronic obstructive airways disease, you might have in- inflamm- something like rheumatoid arthritis, there's a whole bunch of things that cumulatively are quite common that increase your risk of bad things happening if you get COVID. So the vaccines reduce that risk by maybe 90%, which is amazing. It's, it's phenomenal. But it's not 100%. Mm. So as the case numbers go up, the number of people who get 
ill enough to require a hospital goes up. The number of people who require intensive care goes up. And unfortunately, the number of people who die goes up. Okay, and the protection against this variant is all the less. Uh, It seems to be. Some simple maths. Uh, there's 18 cases identified, uh, but uh, it's obviously more widespread than that. And the CMO saying last night uh, it's probably around 11%. So we're talking about 400, 500 cases compared yeah. to a week ago when it was 1% when we were talking about 40, 50 cases. Yeah. Uh, and does that mean that by tomorrow that four or 500 cases could be 1,000 and 2,000 a day after and so on? It's probably not that fast because there's, there's lots of other things going on. But it does mean that you could have 4,000 cases of Omicron by, what day is today? Today is Wednesday. Tuesday. So you could have 4,000 cases of Omicron by the end of this week. And that would be deeply disturbing. And it depends. I mean, it looks like the number of cases of Delta may be dropping, which is, is great. But the number of cases of Omicron is rising faster. What matters is the total mm-hmm. burden of cases. One of my UK colleagues has calculated that we could actually run both a Delta outbreak and an Omicron outbreak together. And they could add because it could affect slightly different groups of people. Uh, I don't, I mean, she doesn't know if, she, if she's right, but it's, it's something she studied to see what would happen, could it happen, and what would happen if it did. And what happens is the case numbers go up even faster. So we have to be ready for case numbers going up, but we have to do everything we can to stop case numbers, to stop that happening. Um, but, you know, for, mm. if you ask, what, what can you do? Well, what you can do is you can get vaccinated if you're not vaccinated. You can wear a mask, and preferably one of these N95 masks. A lot of pharmacies now are selling them, and you can get them from um, a whole bunch of online places. And they're typically about €1.10, for a paper mask and they, they work better mm. they work considerably better than cloth masks at the start of the pandemic we said don't wear them because healthcare staff needed them and there weren't enough of them but there are enough of them now that, that's shifted stay outdoors if you run a pub if you run a restaurant if you run a venue see if you can get your hands at a HEPA filter HEPA filters are around 200, 300 euros for a kind of a model for a mid-sized room. Get one. Mm. Leave your windows open. Spend as much time outdoors as you can. Meet as few people as you can get away with. Um, but it's going to be, it's, you know, all of this, should, we, we should have started all this two months ago. Mm. But, you know, we're here now. We, just, we, we, we have to start taking this seriously. We're not doing contact tracing properly. We haven't been doing it properly for months. We need to do it. We need to stop messing around with schools and start admitting this virus spreads in schools. NEF have been really quiet about that. Um, we, we need to take this seriously as a serious problem. It's not uncontrollable. It's not going to be as bad as it was in some parts of Europe uh, at the start of this, you know, because of vaccination. But the health service is under extreme strain. And what about a, a circuit breaker for school children closing the schools early? Government uh, seems uh, intent on running up to the end of the year. Would you advise them against that? I honestly don't think it would make much difference at this point. 
I think if you're going to do if you're going to do something that's something that's relatively logical to do. Uh, but I think this there's this vision. People think of this as, as spreading the way electricity spreads. It doesn't spread the way electricity spreads. It spreads the way a fishing net spreads. It spreads around networks of people, and the virus is in the networks. So even if you take out a portion of it by reducing the contacts between children, it, it doesn't have that much impact. This really has mm. to be dealt with across the whole of society. So when you go out into the community at Christmas time, you'd expect shops to be packed, you'd expect pubs to be packed, you'd expect restaurants to be packed. Mm. Uh, you were talking about uh, people who run pubs and so on, uh, getting HEPA filters in. Uh, should you be going into packed shops or packed restaurants or packed pubs uh, if uh, they are packed and the ventilation isn't what it should be? Ideally, no. And at the very least, you should be wearing a mask when you're shopping. You know, you, if you're in a big shopping centre and it's busy, you should be wearing a mask from the time you get out of your car to the time you get back into your car again. That, I mean, that's just mm. the reality. And I think that's likely to be, that's likely to last longer. I mean, we, we had a, mm. a conversation from the Thonishta the other day about what this might look like next Christmas. Never mind this Christmas. Mm. Um, so, you know, what about Christmas Day? Uh, Christmas Day uh, and days like that over the Christmas holidays uh, and family gatherings. How many people uh, should gather together in one house? I think it's it's more how many households should gather together. Where I'll give you an example. Myself and my brother and our families are hoping to visit my mother on Christmas Day. And we're all going to have an antigen test before we go. And that's, we're all vaccinated. Uh, my children and myself, our, ourselves are vaccinated. Um, and we're not, you know, we're, we're going to have the window open and we're not going to spend a very long time, a very long time there. But that's what we'd like to do. And I just hope it's possible. What else? NAFID will be meeting uh, on Thursday and uh, it's in their gift to make recommendations to the government whether the government accept those recommendations. Uh, but should they be uh, recommending uh, that there be a tightening of restrictions? I think restrictions is the wrong way to think about this. We, we, we've got this kind of reactive approach to dealing with this. And at the start, we were kind of playing whack-a-mole with the virus and we were losing. And we're still doing it. We're still following behind the virus. We actually have to get ahead of it. And restrictions should be the last thing. Restrictions are the last shot in your locker. Restrictions are what you use when everything else is failing or has failed. Mm. But we're not doing a lot of the straightforward stuff that we should be doing. And, uh, you know, we're, we're not sequencing anywhere near enough cases. We should be sequencing what the Danes are seeking, something like 90% of their cases. We're not testing enough. Your testing capacity has is full. Well, we actually, I'm sorry, we need to increase testing capacity and we need to increase it substantially. And that's not beyond, it's not impossible to do that, but it can be done. We don't have a working IT system for the vaccinations yet, which is outrageous. We need it. Mm. We need it yesterday. That's we fine. don't have a working IT system for track and trace. We need it yesterday. 
Yeah, you've the Taoiseach saying people don't want their boosters and uh, people not being able to get their boosters. Uh, they hope to vaccinate uh, one and a half million people or to give boosters to them before uh, the end of the year. Then we've uh, the ludicrous situation on, or what seemed to be a ludicrous situation on Sunday where the waiting time was up to five hours in Navan for people to get vaccinated and there was no waiting times in Castle Blaney or in Swords or City West. Well, in some ways, that's positive because it says people want to be vaccinated. I mean, there, there was news on Monday where the UK booster system crashed. And it crashed because so many people wanted boosters. And actually, that's great because the uptake of boosters, uh, the uptake of vaccines has been amazing. The uptake of boosters has been amazing. It's inevitable with this, this kind of system. You're going to get queues in some places, not in others. HSE have a regular piece of information about where there are queues and they publish it several, certainly several times a day and uh, I see it on Twitter but it comes up on their website as well so it is possible to plan if if you've got the transport and the mobility it is possible to plan to go somewhere the queues are shorter but it was, as long uh, as long as we're in this phase queuing is going to happen and I, I think HSE, I think the vaccine teams are doing their utmost. Mm. I, I honestly don't think they can do a lot more. Mm. No, I think there are delays, things go wrong. But generally, the vaccination programme has been a great ad, ad, advertisement for HSE. Okay. They've done a really good job. All right, and they'll continue to do it. Uh, they have their work cut out for them anyway, if nothing else. Uh, but we'll leave it there for the moment. Professor Staines, thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme once again today. Anthony Staines is a Professor of Health Systems in the School of Nursing in DCU and spokesperson for the Independent Scientific Advocacy Group. Michael Reed on LMFM. I'm not sure I should ask what balcony bingo is, uh, but it's obviously very interactive. Uh, And let's uh, talk to Eddie McGuinness, because I'm told Eddie McGuinness is a good talker, a man who can talk for hours. Good morning to you, Eddie, and thanks for joining us. Uh, People might know Eddie because he's from Dundalk. He lives in Dublin. He's uh, the Dublin Pride event manager. Uh, And you were talking for five hours at Balcony Bingo, uh, and probably uh, not too surprising afterwards, you had a bit of a sore throat, Eddie. Tell us uh, about your story after that. Uh, Good morning, Michael, and good morning to all your listeners on LMFM. Uh, how do I put it? Uh, yes, I do love to talk and probably, as most of my friends would say, give me a mic and I'm away. But that's a good Dundalk person trying to get his uh, voice out there. Mm. What happened was, as you know, uh, communities around the country all rallied around each other. And in our case, in the Ivy Trust here in Dublin, uh, with colour, we decided to do balcony bingo. Not only did we do one, but we did about six of them in total and raised over 25,000 euros for different charities and different organisations. But that's what community is all about. But by doing so, over the time as I was getting uh, doing them, uh, my throat would get sore. Mm. And uh, anyone who would know, even yourself or anyone else as a professional uh, MC, you make sure you put things in place and make sure your health is in good order and drink plenty of water. But I thought at the end of it, uh, a bit of tonsillitis might have kicked in again. And of course, as you know, during COVID, it's little small sore throats, 
sniffles. We were all worried. We were all panicking. So I reached out to my doctor and asked him. And he, of course, with COVID, I couldn't get in to see him. And I ended up, uh, what do you call it, getting those virtual uh, meetings. So he decided, oh, well, you've had tonsillitis before, Eddie. Uh, what we'll do is we'll give you a course of antibiotics. Did right. my course mm-hmm. of antibiotics. We continued and did some more balcony bingos and other events for Pride as well. And I ended up is my throat didn't improve. And it actually, in a way, started getting worse. It went from a sore so throat was, to a lump, to a lump the size of a golf pole. Yes, what happened was going into, September, into October time, uh, a cap of my tooth uh, came out uh, and went to get to the dentist. And at this stage, uh, I've never seen someone uh, covered up so much in PPE in my life uh, taken out in my cap. But within days, I had a lump on my neck thinking, oh, I got an infection, something is wrong. Uh, just kind of monitor it, gave my doctor a call. He said, oh, it might be just a small infection. Just do the usual gargle with salt and water, take some paracetamol. If it's not down in the week, uh, give me a call. I did that. Mm. That was the positive aspect was taking good guidance. I didn't go after Dr. Google and try to uh, uh, interfere into trying to read into every area what one could do. And self-diagnose, but you ended up with uh, the shocking diagnosis that you had stage 3 throat cancer. Uh, Yes, I had cancer in my tonsil, I had cancer in my tongue, and I had cancer in my lymph node in my neck. Right. So in three different locations, uh, they found uh, cancer. And not only did they find cancer, uh, within literally minutes of being with the consultant, Dr. Lenhin, in uh, James's hospital, he could tell me before anything came back and said, Eddie, how, how strong do you want the diagnosis? Mm. Uh, how can we? How direct can we be? And I said, not only 100 percent, but 110, 120 percent. Just give it to me, and we will deal with it. And when he said that to me, he just goes, "I am 110 percent. It is uh, throat cancer." Nice. As we talked through some stuff, he goes, "You're taking this very, very calmly." And I said, "No, I'm actually not taking it calmly. When I leave here now, I'm going to the toilet. I'm going to cry like a baby." I'm probably going to get sick like anything and then I'm going to suck it up and I'm going to go and get the biggest hug from my husband and then try and tell him that I have throat cancer. Right. Uh, And they didn't operate. Uh, It was radiotherapy and chemotherapy and I'm sure you've been through it. You've come out the other side though, but a a long journey, I take it, Eddie, uh, for such a talker. You weren't able to talk at one stage uh, apart from anything else. Yeah, that was the that was the because of the pandemic uh, and COVID, and that was we have to realise that was Christmas last year. I was informed I was going to be getting surgery to take some of my tongue away. I was getting being informed that my tonsils were going to be removed, uh, and then potentially lymph nodes. But from that, because of COVID, uh, they decided to go down another end, which which would have been anyway. After surgery, I would have had to go through uh, some form of radiotherapy and chemotherapy. So what they decided then was to actually give me radio and chemotherapy simultaneously 
and at what I've been told that a, a high volume mm. and that was one of the scariest journeys I've ever been on. Mm. People have to realise during pandemic uh, the amount of diagnosis and people not going in to get checked but we really want people to go and get checked but not only that is help one another for those who have been diagnosed with cancer and other illnesses at the same time is protect each other out there. And also it's a lonely time because every time I did this, I had to do this on my own. And nobody was there to hold my hand. There was nobody there to give me that hug because the staff, the nurses, everything couldn't do that because of the requirements at the moment. And even to a point, family and friends like after days of going to get diagnosed, unfortunately, a very close friend, family friend, Mrs. Stafford in Mahavnamore passed away. And I was told I wasn't allowed near people, but I had to say goodbye to an amazing lady. And she ended up, is, uh, went up, I couldn't even give my dad a hug to tell him, or he couldn't give me a hug to say it was okay, including my sister, Denise, that, that it was going to be okay. Mm. I couldn't hug anyone because I had to keep my distance from everyone. And they've and all... That was a scary journey. They've all walked this road with you. You've all been on a, a long journey. Are you cancer-free now, Eddie? No, the definition of cancer-free will never be with me until at least going on five years. I, we're only, like, we're less than a year. Okay, but you are, you are in remission and your treatment I has been successful so far. Yes. Uh, and you put yeah. that down to getting the HPV vaccine 10 years ago, I think, as well as going to your doctor uh, as soon as you felt there might have been a problem. Yes, and they're the two key things. Is And this is what we're trying to get out there uh, at the moment is, no matter who you are, no matter, uh, even as a parent, an aunt, uncle, guardian, but also our younger generation. HPV va- vaccine is out there. It is free. And please go out and get it, because that actually, in a way, helped, we believe, to help save where I am. Like, at one point, I had to make this uh, plan. What if this got worse? What if... Like, we still don't know if it's going to come back or not. But so far, fingers are all crossed, toes are all crossed, and in positiveness, it is all crossed. Like, it has been a journey and a half. And like everything else, us Irish people really do like to, to talk. Absolutely. And get our message out yep. there. And I think that's it. But please do, if you have something wrong, and not just cancer, but also at the same time other illnesses, please go to your doctor and talk to your doctor and ask. The help is there, even if it is only a phone consultation or not. But please do reach out to you. Very good. We're glad you're well uh, and hope you stay well. Happy Christmas. Legs 11, 77. Eddie McGuinness, thank you very much. Pleasure. And again, look after yourselves and to all your listeners. A big Merry Christmas and a great New Year. And fingers crossed in January we get more good news. Each, every three months when we go back in to check, is everything okay? Uh, we get a step closer to being uh, near to the end of our journey. And that's what okay. it's about. It is a journey. And I think that's what it's all about for people. Very good. Look after each other and please keep each other safe. Best of luck to you, Eddie. Thank you indeed for joining us today. 
Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, Aaron Road, Aaron has announced uh, that a French company, Alstrom, has been awarded the contract for the Dart Plus fleet, which will deliver 750 new rail carriages over 10 years. Barry Kenny, Corporate Communications Manager with Aaron Road, Aaron, is on the line. Good morning, Barry. Thanks uh, indeed uh, for joining us. There'll be a lot of interest in this locally. What more can you tell us? Uh, well, yeah, this is a huge order, uh, quite simply. Um, it will be the largest and most sustainable fleet in Irish public transport history, let alone uh, rail. And as you say, it's a, a framework agreement. It means that as we develop the Dark Plus programme, we can order up to 750 carriages over 10 years. And yesterday, the, the, the first 95 carriage order was, was signed for us, so they, they will be coming uh, from mid-2024 onwards. And there'll be a mixture of carriages, uh, but 65 of them will be battery electric and 30 will be electric and those battery electric carriages will be for the draft of Dublin route so uh, what it means is that while we are working on the electrification of that line uh, that we'll be able to deliver the additional capacity for the Dark Plus uh, with new carriages ahead of that as I say delivered for 2024 and in service in 2025 with brand new trains for the Drogheda line. So the Dart will go to Drogheda in 2025 is it? That's correct, yes. So you'll have, the, have these, these services. Now, we do have more infrastructure work to do to, to, to build uh, capacity further, uh, but these carriages in themselves will provide more capacity uh, and uh, allow us to operate more services as well. So it's a, it's, it's a huge moment as well as in terms of development of our services because uh, that's what people know about the Dark Plus programme. There's a lot of infrastructure planning that has to happen. Uh, but as I say, these trains are coming. Uh, Alstom, uh, together ourselves, will be working now on, on the construction uh, of and we've already got design focus groups underway with, with customers to ensure that the, the, the final fit out is decided upon. And it's going to be a very different environment on board. People are going to see, you know, I think, you know, quite a, a modern, radically different uh, environment, uh, you know, enhanced facilities for dedicated uh, areas for families, uh, dedicated bicycle storage areas, uh, much improved uh, wheelchair access, uh, including an automatically uh, retractable ramp. So when the door opens, uh, the ramp will come out uh, and wheelchair customers uh, will be able to board with some platform modifications uh, independently. So uh, really kind of building a fleet. If you take the original date, the dark fleet, Michael, you know, they're in service almost 40 years. Mm. So that's how kind of crucial a, a new train order is. This is what taking the train is going to be about for, for, for the next couple of generations. Mm. So well, that'll be very welcome. Our, you can probably hear I'm pretty excited. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Understandably. So that'll be uh, very welcome, I'm sure, by wheelchair users. Uh, and will the service then uh, be expanded? Uh, will there be more darts uh, available after the line is electrified? Yeah, yes, because what we're doing is, um, in terms of the infrastructure, uh, the, the Dark Plus it has well, different constituent parts, and the Dark Plus Coastal North uh, is the project that will see uh, the north side uh, upgraded. We're also doing works under the West programme that will improve the capacity in the, in the city centre. And the goal of mm. this is to have trains every 10 minutes, uh, yeah, yeah. as we do on the existing Dark Line. extending. And, and while you're using the battery trains, uh, how often will they be? Uh, well, they, as I say, they, that that will be uh, in, in terms of the infrastructure coming in. Uh, again, that's down to the railway order, but you're looking at probably 2025, 2026. Uh, uh, but from 2025, they will provide more capacity because what they'll do is mm. they'll operate under the electric wires as far as Malahide. Uh, then they will travel to Drogheda under the battery power. There'll be quick recharging facilities in Drogheda mm-hmm. uh, and then back uh, to the electrified network. So okay, it's, but a, it's a good way of delivering. I take it at that stage that they won't be every 10 minutes, will they? Not quite every no, 10 minutes, but no. we'll be building the frequency 
uh, uh, at that time mm. uh, to have additional services, particularly a peak, uh, and then with the, the, the full infrastructure delivered, then that'll enable us to go to the 10-minute okay. frequency. So, so that'll be 25, 26. Uh, uh, w- when would you hope to have the line electrified up to Drada? Uh, that, as I say, will be going to public consultation on Dark plus coastal north in the new year. I'd expect that probably the late January, early February, that that consultation will begin. Uh, I think that's likely to be towards, uh, and, 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 and don't don't hold me on this exactly, but it's, as I say, it's, it, you'd be looking at the kind of 28 uh, or so uh, for that. Uh, again, a lot of that is down to that planning process, the fact that we've got at least two full rounds of public consultation, which will allow uh, the public, both rail customers and people who live adjacent to the line, see what the plans are, uh, make their submissions. Then there'll be a railway order application uh, to onboard Planala. So, it's a, you know, the infrastructure is a, probably a longer process because of well, the, the complexity of uh, any project like this. Uh, but in the meantime, what I would say is that this new fleet will actually be maintained uh, in our facility in Drogheda as well, the, 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 uh, the, the facility that we built uh, back in the noughties uh, at Drogheda Station. So uh, people on the Northern Line and in Drogheda in particular uh, will be very familiar with these trains when they start to arrive. OK, we leave it there. Thank you, Adade, for joining us this morning. That's Barry Kenny, Corporate Communications Manager with Erin Rodarin. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the Irish Refugee Council is welcoming uh, the way that the Irish government is uh, to accept some 500 refugees into this country from Afghanistan. Let's speak uh, to Nick Henderson, uh, CEO of the Refugee Council. Good morning to you, Nick. Thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, You're wondering, though, if uh, that's uh, enough places. Yeah, so this is an announcement uh, in response to the situation in Afghanistan. As we know, the Taliban took over in August and the Irish government committed back in September to open up what's called a humanitarian admissions program. Uh, We've done things like this before in response to the Syrian crisis, for example. Uh, And 500 people, as you say, uh, will be uh, offered places to reunify with family members here in Ireland. So we really very much welcome, as you say, uh, this response from the Irish government. Um, People are in dire straits in Afghanistan at the moment. We know this from the queries that that we're receiving. But we do have a few um, comments on the scheme. We're concerned that 500 places is too too few. uh, And there is a limit of four beneficiaries per household. And we think that needs to be uh, applied with some flexibility as well. What does that mean? Uh, Explain that to us. That's uh, relatives uh, who of people who are already here, is it? Yeah, so if I'm uh, an Afghan, uh, I'm a refugee from Afghanistan already in Ireland, or I may be a, a, a an Irish citizen who has family in Afghanistan, I would be limited to apply for a maximum of four uh, family members who are in Afghanistan. Now, that may be more than enough for the, for the majority of people, but there will be, uh, from what we're seeing through our queries that are coming to us as an organization, there will be people who have more than four family members who will be in, in, in difficulty mm. uh, and, and at risk. Well, if you're married and you have four children, you have an obvious problem, I suppose. Yeah, indeed. Um, the, one of the government's requirements as well, and this was similar to previous humanitarian emissions programs, is that the sponsor, so that would be me sponsoring a, a family member to come to Ireland, would have to accommodate uh, and support the person 
while they are here. Now, that may be possible in in uh, most or maybe half of the cases that of people who would apply, but there will be situations where people may not be able to do that. So that's another concern. Mm. You have other concerns then on top of that. Yeah, so there's a few things that we're waiting to see that will and will emerge on Thursday when the when the program is announced. It will open on Thursday and will be open for two months, which is uh, which is good. We had asked it for it to be open for for more than four weeks, which was initially proposed. But there are a few things that we're looking out for. Firstly, whether people will be given a travel document to travel from Afghanistan to Ireland. Uh, Many people uh, in Afghanistan that we're aware of through our work currently don't have Afghanistan passports, or if they do have one, it may have lapsed. And there are issues with getting a passport from the Taliban authorities. Mm. Uh, And then also issues around, as I say, the financial requirements uh, to support people. If I'm just a newly arrived Afghan refugee, I may not be able to meet the the financial requirements of supporting somebody when they come here. so it's 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 very much to be welcomed. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. Um, I, I think we're Ireland would be one of the only, if not the only, uh, EU countries that's opened a scheme like this and the regularisation scheme that opened uh, two weeks ago or was announced two weeks ago. So uh, very much welcome them, but that we need to get the details right. Uh, but it's still possible to get out of Afghanistan. The Taliban aren't blocking people's passage. Yeah, we're having receiving mixed reports of that, and a bigger human rights or international human rights organisations have commented on this. I think Amnesty may have done a report on this several weeks ago. I think it can be uh, it can be very difficult, particularly particularly if you're a person of interest to the Taliban. Um, the flights have resumed, but the Taliban now control all the country and presumably control the airport. So mm-hmm. if somebody is at risk, they may have to travel overground through Pakistan. And then there can be issues in getting, uh, making sure that the Pakistani authorities give somebody a visa uh, with which to travel through Pakistan to uh, an airport in Islamabad, for example, and then fly out of Islamabad. So it's by no mm. means easy. Um, mm. uh, I take a lot of the people who want to get out are what they would call people of interest and have to flee over land rather than trying to take a charter flight. Yeah, indeed, mm. indeed. Yeah, so mm. the, a lot of people and, and a variety of backgrounds, they could be people who've worked with the previous government, been involved in the previous military, um, for example, served in the army, uh, been involved or and worked with foreign or Western institutions who, who were in Afghanistan, human rights activists, NGOs, and mm. then um, women as well. You know, people, mm. as far as I know, um, I think I checked this last week, girls can still not go to, to certainly not secondary school. No, sec- sec- secondary school is not permitted. I think they say for safety reasons or security reasons or something bizarre like that. But uh, mm. I'm not sure there's much logic uh, to our minds uh, in the way the Taliban rules uh, the country with uh, an iron fist Uh, and you're working with quite a few people who have managed to get out and who are here now. Uh, Tell us what they're saying to you about life in Afghanistan. Yeah, so we're working with um, people who are in Ireland uh, applying for sponsors. 
uh, applying for family members in, in Afghanistan, a lot of worry, huge amounts of worry and concern and anxiety about family members, uh, reports that people are being um, hunted by the Taliban, that they are having to go into hiding, um, that they uh, their previous life is now completely gone, that they're, they're without anything at all so they're having to start again and 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 that they feel that their only option is but to leave um important also to know that around 500 afghan people have arrived with visa waivers as well just under 500 and they're they're living in 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 what we call erox emergency reception orientation centers or three of them around the country and we're helping them as our other organizations begin their new life here in ireland as well and what about communication uh, with uh, family or friends back home uh uh, does that work uh, in the way we'd expect it with, you know, social media and that sort of thing these days, whether that's WhatsApp or one of these other messaging yeah, services? As, yeah. as far as we, we, we know, it is people are able to communicate uh, through through mobile phone, text message and so on. And we're also, as an organisation, I think others are receiving this as well. Uh, we've had a lot of communication from people in Afghanistan who are requesting help and assistance. We've had more than 150 emails from people who are in Afghanistan uh, saying that they're being um, sought after by the Taliban and and trying to get out and trying to get the the Irish government's help. Um, So that's really really concerning. And some of those emails are, are very distressing in their content. You know, people really talking about difficult situations and family members having been harmed or, or killed. Yeah, executions, I suppose. Mm. Uh, dreadful, uh, frightening place uh, to be, uh, I would imagine, uh, and we were all horrified at uh, the idea of uh, the Americans uh, and the United Nations pulling out uh, and leaving people behind, abandoned uh, as such, uh, at the mercy of uh, the Taliban, Nick. Uh, but what now? What is the attitude of people in this country as Afghanis uh, arrive I- into Ireland? Are they being welcomed by the Irish people? Yeah, we, we've experienced that from the very beginning. Um, we had a huge amount of offers of accommodation and support and solidarity. Uh, that's not really changed uh, since August. Uh, the issue may have slipped off the, the news headlines and our TV screens, but we're still getting requests of support we, almost on a daily basis, which is fantastic to see. Um, we don't always draw down on those offers because sometimes they may not be appropriate to people's circumstances. There could be sort of bigger family members and offers of accommodation wouldn't suit them. But it has, that was always the case, always strong solidarity from the from Irish people. I think they, they, they saw this issue from the very beginning in August, were horrified by it. And it's great to see the government taking action on it, um, albeit we have those comments that I mentioned earlier and, and observations, but it is good to see Ireland uh, taking steps to help people. Very good. Nick, thanks for joining us uh, today. As always, Nick Henderson, Chief Executive Officer of uh, the Irish Refugee Council. Now, let me bring you some of uh, the comments that have been coming to us uh, today. Peter in Dundalk has been in touch with us and he says, we're a week and a half away from Christmas and we should be enjoying ourselves, but here we are talking about COVID. The people who haven't been vaccinated should be put into lockdown and let the rest of us live our lives as normal. I'm after getting the booster jab there and if I was 
because uh, to listen to all of those people who are against vaccinations, I wouldn't have got it. Could you imagine how the country would be if we all decided not to get vaccines? Thanks, uh, Peter, uh, for that. I suppose the reality of it is is just a, a few people uh, who are saying that. There are, of course, people who are not able to get uh, vaccinated for medical reasons, uh, but uh, the people that you're talking about, the anti-vaxxers, if you like, uh, there's very few of them. Uh, Grania says she can't believe how badly organised uh, the booster rollout has been so far. It's been chaotic. People uh, uh, should have an appointment. There should be an appointment system only. Uh, she says uh, that's the way to go. Uh, instead of having people queuing for hours on end, when you're working, you don't have the time to do this and you can't take the day off work and you don't know how long you'll be. Grania is from Drogheda. She's very annoyed also that there is no walk-in centre in the town, which she feels puts people at a disadvantage. Thanks for that, Grania. Uh, just to, to remind you, if you're eligible for a booster and you're going to go to a walk-in centre, check the waiting times. You can check the waiting times uh, through the HSE, uh, certainly on the HSE Twitter feed. They will tell you each centre that is open and what the waiting time is at that particular time of the day. So at 10 o'clock in the morning, you could look and you could see that it's two hours waiting time. You could check again at two o'clock in the afternoon and there'll be no waiting time. Uh, And it's worth keeping an eye on if uh, you want to get a booster uh, and you don't want to have to wait. Deirdre and Kel says uh, they need to put an emergency plan into place to get the vaccines rolled out as quickly as possible or else the hospitals will be overrun again. I'm going to uh, go to my doctor for a booster, but uh, if I hadn't had an appointment, I would have travelled to Navin and I don't have a car. It should be made as accessible as possible for people to get a booster. Thanks, uh, Deirdre, for that. Uh, another call to us uh, then... Um, it's a text message actually uh, from somebody uh, following on from uh, the interview with Eddie McGuinness uh, who's uh, in remission uh, well done Eddie McGuinness uh, a great honest interview says our caller I'm sure Eddie will uh, appreciate that and uh, thanks uh, for sending on that message to Eddie uh, John and Navin was on to us uh, before we even came on air this morning John said uh, Pascal Donoghue is asking people to vote for the coalition next election that's uh, for Fine Gael, Fianna Fáil and the Green Party coalition. Uh, John says that would be like Joe Biden Biden asking the American people to vote for Donald Trump. Four more years of uh, the present disaster shower would be unbearable. I mean, I'd imagine they'd hope to be in for five years, John. I'd say it'd be more like Joe Biden asking Americans to vote for Joe Biden or Donald Trump asking <laughs> uh, Americans to vote for uh, Donald Trump because Pascal Donahue is asking people to vote for more of the same. But thanks indeed uh, for your text to the programme. Uh, John was up early thinking about these things and I'm delighted that he shared his thoughts with us. If you haven't been with uh, in touch with us today as yet and if you have something on your mind as always, we'd love to hear from you. Michael Reed on LMFM. Travellers have written to the Taoiseach Michal Martin about uh, the inequalities uh, they face living in this country, living in unsafe and overcrowded conditions without basic facilities quite often. Unemployment amongst travellers is over 84%. Life expectancy is 15 years less than the national average. Infant mortality is three times higher than in the settled population. Suicide rates are seven times higher, accounting for 11% of traveller deaths. Add to that institutionalised racism, exclusion, discrimination and a denial of human rights and you really have a problem, a problem that there isn't the political will to address. All of uh, this was highlighted in uh, the letter to uh, the Taoiseach and uh, 
was part of what was being said at a protest outside of Leinster House on Friday to mark UN Human Rights Day. Let's uh, talk to Thomas McCann, who's manager of the Traveller Counselling Service and member of the National Traveller Mental Health Network. Good morning to you, Thomas, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. You're saying there's a, a mental health epidemic as a, a result of all of this in your community. That needs urgent action. And you've obviously a lot of support for this position because, uh, as I understand it, 4,000 people signed that letter that you gave to the Taoiseach. Yeah, good morning, Michael, and thanks for having me on. Uh, yeah, indeed, you know, the National Traveller Mental Health Network, uh, and as it tells, it's a national network of travellers and organisations from across the country. Uh, you know, uh, yeah, we did. We, we, we signed a letter to the Taoiseach, and why the Taoiseach is because, you know, for decades now, uh, travellers and traveller organisations, and including some there in your own constituency, particularly the Mead uh, Traveller Workshops, and you know uh, Michael McDonough, who you might have known, absolutely uh, yeah. passed mm-hmm. away recently. He may rest in peace, and it uh, was a very active, uh, you know, uh, in terms of uh, travel rights. And uh, for decades, we have, uh, you know, negotiated, uh, met with, uh, participated in round tables, and it hasn't transpired into action, into change for travellers on the ground. In fact, if anything, conditions are getting worse, you know. Why? Uh, so well, well, why so is that, do you think? To, uh, you know, to, to actually make sure, ensure, because ultimately it's the, it's the Taoiseach's responsibility to ensure that, that the government is held to account. Mm. But why are conditions getting worse? Well, it's the institutionalised racism, because mm. if we look at, say, for instance, an example of that, and you mentioned it, the accommodation situation mm. of travellers, and you mentioned over the day, de- as you see over the decades, even when there was resources available, yeah, mm. uh, Jordan the Boom and all the rest of it, it it wasn't the money wasn't drawn down. Mm. You know, why why is that? Does that come down? Does, does that come down to the councillors? It does, but it's the institutionalised racism against mm. travellers in this country, yeah. and you know, kind of that's and that was uh, kind of institutionalised by the state actually in 1963 in the Itinerancy Commission uh, report. And if people want to have a look at that, they can get that off uh, government website. And you see that the that the, uh, every arm of the state was uh, was used to really kind of uh, uh, to annihilate traveller culture, and it stated in it that any. Uh, efforts to support uh, uh, itinerants, as the, the report calls travellers, uh, uh, should be aimed at absorption into the general settled population. Mm. You know, so that's, that, like from, particularly from there, now it's happened before there, but it's, like that's why it, this has been institutionalised for decades, and we haven't really seen, even with all the recommendations and all the reports, and all the kind of involvement, and it's not for the lack of willingness on the traveller, uh, uh, on travellers' behalf, because travellers around the country, and they, you can go out there locally and go down to uh, Navin and talk to them down in Mead and see how long, I think I think 35 years or thereabouts, that organisation has been going trying to improve the situation of travellers. And you, and you see that that hasn't really kind of transpired into real change. Mm. Do you understand why, though? Well, I think, as I said, like uh, it mm. was normal. Uh, it was normal practice to exclude travellers. It's mm. only in two thousand. We have to remember, it's only in two thousand that uh, uh, that the Equal Status Act came in. Mm. You know, you know, it's not that long ago that they used to have signs, uh, and you know, uh, 
so it was quite a normal practice. And I mean, that's not unique to Ireland. I mean, that happens in other countries in other countries as well, with many uh, indigenous groups, whether it's First Nations or Aboriginal. But the, but but it's it's racism. That's what it is, uh, Michael. Okay. Well, bluntly. The rate of suicide is shocking, isn't it? It's absolutely, and that's that's mm. been increasing. The, the, one of the first reports that was done was in nineteen, I think it was nineteen ninety three, by a woman called Mary Rose Walker. Yeah. Mm. Uh, or was it 2003? I think it could have been 2003. Sorry about that. Uh, but she, at that stage, she found that suicide rates was three times higher than in the settled community, yeah? Mm-hmm. Uh, so she did. So you can see between, you know, 2003 and now that, that has, there's been a huge increase. Now, I think some people think it's even higher than that because there's no ethnic identifier, you know? Uh, but just to say, along during that time as well, you see... Uh, particular pieces of legislation coming in. You see the anti-trespass legislation, which is which criminalises nomadism, and like you know, kind of, and has only ever been used on travellers. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, so you see these things. Uh, there's a correlation between certain things. You see the, you know, the the, the control of horses act coming in. You see the the the, mar- the market trade act coming in. But you don't, and also then you see, like if you talk to any travellers on the ground there in Loud, and you ask them about employment, and uh, you know, kind of. The chances are that a lot of travellers doesn't even get to the interview. Yeah, not a hope. You know, so like yeah. it's it's a situation where 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 there's more and more restrictive laws, where kind of uh, accommodation isn't built, uh, and where impl- there's, there's no way of making a living. So you can imagine how this affects and overcrowded conditions. You can imagine how this affects people's mental health. Mm. There's a, a lack of trust, but I think there's probably a lack of trust on both sides. Uh, would you agree with that? I, th- I think there's a there's a lack of trust, but I think uh, you know, kind of, the, the 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 state has a duty to uphold the rights of everyone in the country. Mm. You know, I think the government has a that's the responsibility of government. You know, of course, there's probably a lack of trust with all the, uh, you know, the exclusion. I mean, after decades of exclusion from when you're born, if you're told that you're not wanted or you get that message that you're not wanted, you're going to have, you know, uh, kind of, you, you, that, you can internalize that. And that affects your confidence, your self-esteem, you know, all of them things around mental health. But the state has a responsibility to ensure that all, everyone in the country are guaranteed their rights. And certainly travellers hasn't, hasn't been afforded that protection. Mm. Uh, a lifetime of go-move shift. Nobody wants that, uh, I'm sure, Thomas. But, uh, oh, and I mean, there's younger, younger travellers growing up. I mean, less than 1% of travellers has gone on to third level, uh, you know, uh, 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 education. You know, there's a, there's a higher drop, a really mm. high drop out rate. And why is that? Is that because of what happens uh, at second level in secondary school? I think it's what happens through the whole system, uh, uh, Michael, to be quite mm. honest with you. If you look at it, like, you know, kind of uh, a lot of travellers, the, the, education the education system in this country has let down travellers, you know, really has. And I mean, I went through the education system as a traveller. And what was the difference between you and somebody else going through the education I, system? I left, well, most travellers, like myself, left school like around 11 or 12. Mm. And I did as well. I Were you treated differently, though, by the teachers, by the other kids in the school? Or? No, you weren't really, I, like, I mean, you weren't really educated. I mean, we had, after the protest, and this is just a by, by the way, after the protest, TG Carr was on to us, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, for to somebody to go on and do, um, uh, to, to do an interview. I never got to an Irish class in school. Mm. 
like not because I wasn't in school. It was, I, I was never in an Irish class. So yeah. it just tells you there was no expectation for travellers. Mm. Uh, certainly in my generation, there was, you know, kind of there was no supports there. There was no kind of... Uh, uh, really, it was uh, kind of culture wasn't taken into account. In fact, the, the whole ethos was to educate travellers out of being travellers. If you know what I mean, right? So, uh, so uh, and and as I say, it'd be very interesting for some of your listeners uh, to to go and have a look at the 1963 itinerancy report mm. because they'd get a real understanding of what I'm talking about here in terms of you know the decades and all and the different arms of the state being kind of uh, brought together to kind of. Uh, 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 get rid of travel culture, really. Mm. And when you talk about nomadism, uh, you were talking about uh, people yeah. setting up camp in a, a green area. Uh, do you understand why people don't want that? Because you're setting up camp in a, a place where there are no facilities. It's not geared up to do that, and all sorts of problems emanate around it. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, the, 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 you know, there was never a, there was never um, there was never any effort put in to accommodate a nomadic culture. It was never like. Uh, how how do you make it work? Well, well, uh, well. I think the first thing is that there's a willingness, and I mean, mm. in the, there was a report on in 1995. It was called the Task Force Report. Yeah. I thought um, the halting sites were. No, the halting sites are not. The halting sites are not. The halting sites for the halting sites uh, kind of, you know, uh, do for some families. They allowed the extended family because, as you know, um, mm. Michael, or as you probably know. The extended family is a really important part of travel culture, yeah? Mm-hmm. So individual houses, and then even when people do kind of have gone in, now some people might be having, you know, kind of uh, uh, have very successfully gone into individual uh, um, uh, houses. and mm. kind of, But there's been a lot of cases where travellers have moved into individual houses to try and that, and then kind of find themselves in a situation where uh, where if they're visited by their, by their relatives, if they're having... You know, they can't, you know, so... It's yeah, very, but very you have halting sites with caravans, don't you, Thomas? You, know, you have halting sites with caravans. You does have, that, does, you does, have, does, does, does that they were designed in a way, uh, Michael, the, 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 the sites was designed in a way that they were, they, were, they were meant as a stepping stone because they weren't designed by travellers, yeah? Mm. They were designed by... Uh, uh, the settlement committee of the day, yeah. So, so, so you knew you need a, a, a new design, is this? So you, that need, you need to accommodate traveller culture, and really, mm. at the, at the heart of that, is saying, look, travellers didn't, you know, kind of, uh, you know, historically, travellers were nomadic, and mm. that's, you know, that's mm. there. I don't have to kind of go back into yeah, that. Yeah. But, well, tra- you know, tra- traveller by name and nature, if you like, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and. Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 the family was that traditionally for hundreds of years. That's the way travellers lived, like, you know, in the extended family and still do. Mm. So the extended family is an absolute kind of core part of traveller culture. So that needs to be accommodated. And usually kind of uh, that was done in certain counties. Now, then that changes over time. And some people have kind of settled down in areas and lived in, live in group housing schemes. But like there's never been a real effort to accommodate traveller culture. That's at the core of it. Okay. It's, it's Did core traveller culture. You know, like any radio programme, I suppose, Thomas, our time is limited. Uh, can I ask you before we wrap up, uh, did you have any response from the Taoiseach? No, and, and I just wanted to say that we were that the community were were very, very disappointed, uh, uh, Michael, that nobody, that nobody from the Taoiseach's office, now we didn't expect the Taoiseach because he's a very busy person, but that nobody from the Taoiseach off, Taoiseach's office could come out and accept a letter after 4,000 people signing it, 
uh, it was a bitter disappointment and in some ways symbolised in, uh, for, for many people the exclusion, I think, you know. Okay. Uh, so, that, so like, you know, and, and just before you go, there's mm. two things, I think, that yep. what are the things that could happen to make, make a change, that would make change, yeah? Mm-hmm. Uh, is a National Traveller Accommodation Agency uh, where the, where the uh, accommodation needs of travellers are taken out of the local authority, the hands of the local authority, because, you know, it, we've seen year after year, decade after decade, that that hasn't worked, even when there is f- funding available. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, so we need a National Traveller Accommodation Agency that looks at the needs of travellers, uh, you know, and uh, comes up with a, a, a plan to accommodate travellers' accommodation properly. And then when we're on an, e- an, evil, an even playing pitch, then it can go back into the local authorities. Okay. The second thing that travellers need is an ombudsman for travellers, hmm? similar to, the, to an ombudsman for children, because the, the, the state and services need to be held to account, and travellers are not in a position to keep taking court cases individually. They don't have the resources. They don't mm-hmm. have, you know, uh, access to the legal uh, advice. They don't have any of that. So there, there needs to be an ombudsperson for travellers that, that the state and services can help be held to account, you know, until that mm. changes, you know, um, are mm. some of the things okay. uh, that could happen. Okay, well, look, Thomas, uh, I hope you, you'll come back and speak to us again another time. But thank you for talking to us uh, this morning. It's a, a pleasure to have had you on the programme. Thomas McCann is uh, the manager of uh, the Traveller Counselling Service and a member of the National Traveller Mental Health Network. Michael Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, Sage Advocacy has uh, looked to see when people are over 65 and vulnerable or both, uh, if uh, they've been a victim of crime, what type of crime they've been subjected to. Let's talk about this with Sarah Lennon, Executive Director with Sage Advocacy. Good morning to you, Sarah, and thanks uh, indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. Your research has been supported by the Department of Justice and you found that in the past three years, women are more likely uh, to be a victim of a crime than men would be. What type of crimes are being committed against older people? Good morning, Michael. Um, what we're seeing is an increase in, in what we're calling domestic crimes or domestic abuses. They, they would typically be um, financial or domestic um, abuses. Um, and, and in some cases, it's, it's violence against older people in the home. Um, and we've seen that, I suppose, over the last three years, and, and we're, we're sure that COVID has probably played a, a role in this as well, and that, that those types of abuses and, and crimes have gone up. And this is not necessarily the husband beating the wife up, uh, because uh, you say that there's intergenerational households uh, where this is happening. Exactly that, yeah. So there's, it's very complex um, types of households, um, and we know that a lot of people are dependent on family members for, for care and support in the home as well. So it isn't, as you say, just um, between spouses necessarily. Um, it, it can be between other members of the family as well. And I suppose our laws in Ireland, where there's coercion, for example, only apply to sort of intimate partners um, and not other types of relationships. So, you know, that is worrying that there may be other members of your family um, who may be exerting pressure or control over you. Um, but that there isn't any uh, kind of criminal sanction for that at present. And that control over you may be impacting on somebody else. Exactly, and it could be. And it can be very subtle. And I know a lot of work has been done over over the last while, particularly by the likes of Safeguarding Ireland, to show that 
for a lot of people who are maybe financially abusing somebody, they don't necessarily see it that way. They may be taking you know a few quid a week out of somebody's uh, handbag or wallet, or they may be controlling their state payment, for example. But they wouldn't see it as abuse, and yet it can be very much um, have a very serious impact on on the person whose money it is. Mm, yeah, well, yeah. I mean, it's your money, and uh, you should have control over it. Uh, despite the fact that you'd often hear from people saying, "Well, it's petrol money. Uh, I needed somebody to pay for the petrol when I went down to get the pension, or whatever it was." Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And, and look, it may well be appropriate yeah. to get paid for that, yeah. but you should do it by agreement. I think with the person involved. And it may be more than a little bit of uh, petrol money, for that matter, uh, Sarah. Uh, but. Uh, you found from your research that quite often the victims of these crimes uh, don't know what to do uh, or are afraid to report the crimes. Exactly. And the fear to report doesn't necessarily come from, say, fear of the authorities, but, but more fear of, I suppose, reprisals if they're not taken seriously and the person remains living with them, it can make the situation worse. But actually, in some cases, it can be fear of loss of the person because, as you say, they're complex relationships. A lot of the time when people may be feeling that they're being abused or there's a crime being committed, but the fear of losing that person who may be providing other supports in other ways um, can override or, or really kind of make it hard for the person to want to report the crime um, um, or for fear of being left on their own. Mm. Or getting somebody into trouble? Or getting somebody into trouble, absolutely. Um, you know, mm. it, it can be an, an Irish thing to say, you know, what's the harm? But in some cases, the harm... Um, is significant and can build up over many years to, and get worse over time as well. Mm. But I, I mean, let's say it's the son or the daughter uh, who's uh, the perpetrator of uh, this abuse, so whether it's uh, taking a few quid for petrol or a lot more than that, or uh, whether it's violence or whatever the case may be, uh, you sometimes hear uh, of the parents uh, who don't want to get them into trouble. They feel that they uh, will uh, have to deal with the police and all of that sort of thing, and uh, it could be very serious for their children. Exactly that. And, and for a lot of older people dealing with the police, it's, it's challenging anyway. Um, you know, and, and Sage Advocacy has seen through, through their work as well, there are times when somebody by virtue of their age isn't just isn't taken seriously or um, maybe their son, daughter or, or somebody else in the home will say, look, you know, they have dementia or they may make uh, claims against them, which would, I suppose, uh, bring them down maybe in the eyes of the guards taking the statement, for example. So there's, very, there's an enormous amount of barriers for older people or, or people who may be vulnerable. And um, First of all, understanding what's happening to them in terms of it being maybe a potential crime and then in terms of reporting it for fear of the system, but also fear of the loss that might go with it. Is there a common trait in terms of the response and I mean, uh, kind of regardless of the form of uh, abuse, uh, I'm wondering uh, specifically about confidence. Uh, you quite often hear people say that their knock- confidence was knocked by something. Uh, is that something you hear a lot? Definitely, yes. And I think what we're finding with the statistics as well about, about women reporting more than men, and um, we know there's no more older pe- people are women than, than men, um, but also we need to do more work to figure out why that's happening. Is it that, that women are more likely to report are women more likely to report to someone else they can confide in or are they more likely to come to the likes of the sage advocacy and ask for help? Um, what we also are concerned about is that for older people who've maybe been locked away from their informal networks, so the parish events, the other community events, where they might have been able to reach out to a trusted friend and people have been very locked into their own homes now. So our worry is that maybe we're only seeing the tip of an iceberg here as well and there, there may be far more um, incidents of this going on than we realise at present. Yeah, how uh, commonplace do you think it might be? 
it's very difficult to say because I suppose, as I said at the start, um, for a lot of people, they don't recognise maybe that it is abuse or a potential crime that's happening to them. Um, or the person themselves who's doing it doesn't see it that way. So, um, you know, we would we would think it's probably more common than than we think it is. Um, and um, I suppose what we're saying in Sage Advocacy is, you know, we're we're here if you're concerned at all. Mm. Um, you know, we're confidential, um, and we'll support you to to explore what's happening to you. Um, if if you need a bridge between, you know, maybe going to, to the authorities, for example, yeah. to talk to an advocate. Well, t- tell us a little bit more about that, Sarah, because if there's somebody listening to us now and they're just feeling that it's not fair, uh, I mean, uh, they don't want to get somebody arrested, but they want this to yeah. stop, whatever it is. Uh, if they come to you, what happens? Sometimes all you need is to be heard and taken seriously and told that you're right. Um, and and it, you know, our approach in stage would always be to empower people to, to act for themselves and to speak up for themselves. And then we can give you the information and, and signposting for that. But where there are people who maybe can't, they're in difficult situations, they can't speak up, and um, we can we can provide you with the, the support that you need to get to the more formal support. So it really depends on where you are and what you need. Um, but SAGE is available to people if they want to contact us. Okay. Well, we'll leave it there for the moment, Sarah. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Sarah Lennon, Executive Director with SAGE Advocacy. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Time now, as is usual, around this time for our weekly visit to the Garda Crime Desk. As usual, there's a number of incidents Garda are investigating locally and perhaps you can assist with those investigations. Garda, Stacey Wikes of Laytown Station joins us for the report this week and uh, good morning to you and thanks for joining us. We're going to begin in Anfield where a burglary occurred on Friday evening just gone. Yes, good morning, Michael. Um, Guardian Enfield are appealing for information regarding a burglary that took place in the Newcastle area of Enfield on the evening of the 10th of December at approximately 5.30pm, where three males gained entry to the house by breaking the back patio doors with an, inf- with an implement. And when leaving the house, the three males were disturbed by a female occupant. Thankfully, nothing was taken and nobody was injured, but anyone who may have seen any suspicious activity in the area at that time are to call Trim Garda Station on 046 Okay, another house uh, that was uh, broken into to report on next. Uh, this happened in Dundalk on Saturday. Yeah, Guardian and Dundalk are investigating a burglary incident that took place at a house in the Bay Estate area in Dundalk, County Loud. And this was on Saturday the 11th of December between 8.15pm and 9.30pm. A number of items of highly sentimental value, including an engagement ring worth €5,000 and cash to the value of €7,000 were taken from the property. And anyone who may have any information which could assist Gardaí in their investigation, please call Dundalk Garda Station on 042-9388-400. And Michael, I would just like to remind the public that domestic burglaries are increasing during the winter months and 5pm to 10pm are the most vulnerable times. So we'd just like to please ensure that your home is secure and illuminated and you can also visit the Garda website for more home security tips and crime prevention advice. Very good. Have the lights on if you're out uh, and have your alarm on. A lot of people with alarms who don't put them on. Uh, we uh, go to Laytown Beach uh, and indeed beaches in the locality. A uh, number of cars have been broken into recently. That's correct, Michael. Over the past number of months, criminals have been actively targeting parked cars in the scenic areas along the beach in Laytown. Gormanston, Bettystown and Mornington when the drivers are going for their walks. So the most popular time for these crimes are to take place on Thursdays from 1pm to 5pm, from Fridays from 1pm until 7pm, Saturdays are 12pm to 5pm and Sundays are 1pm until 4.30pm. 
So, Michael, Gardaí are urging people not to leave phones, wallets, handbags or any valuables in the cars if you are going for a walk, as this is exactly what the thieves are looking for and they have been very successful as of late. So any item on, of value on display will encourage the thieves to break into the car. So please take your valuables with you or leave them at home if possible and help prevent making it a happy Christmas for the criminals. And also, we want to urge people to remember to park smart and not only at the beaches. Um, with Christmas only a couple of weeks away, we'll all be a bit distracted and in a rush to get gifts. So we want to make sure that you plan your trip, park in a safe and secure and well-lit location and always lock and secure your vehicle. And if you do see any suspicious activity, please report it to the guard station as soon as possible. Okay, we're going back uh, a couple of weeks in time for the next report. And an incident uh, that occurred on the Slane Road in Navan in the middle of the afternoon, reappealing for information uh, about a number of bales that were set on fire and at a great cost. Yes, so the Navan Guardi are investigating again this criminal damage incident in the Ruxton Oak housing estate on the Sunday the 5th of December um, the total cost of the damage caused was €4,200 which is quite substantial so Gardaí are re-appealing for anyone who may have any information which could assist them in their investigation to call NAV and Garda Station on 046 Next to a robbery this took place in a pharmacy in Drogheda Correct, yes. Um, so Gardaí and Drogheda are appealing for information regarding a robbery that took place on the morning of the 11th of December between 9.40am and 9.50am. And this was at Healy's Pharmacy in Drogheda, County Loud. A male entered the pharmacy and showed staff what appears to be a garden shears while he demanded money and tablets, which were then handed over by the staff. And the male made his good escape. So anyone who may have seen any suspicious activity in the area at that time or anyone that has any information which could assist Drogheda Gardaí with their investigation, please call Drogheda Gardaí Station on 041-987-4200 or indeed the Gardaí Confidential Line on 1800-666-111. Next uh, to Stamullen and uh, some criminal damage, uh, an attack on a home and uh, what by all accounts was a frightening incident uh, for the homeowner. It was indeed, Michael, yes. Later and Gardaí are investigating an incident of criminal damage in the Kilbreck area in Stamullen County Meath, and this occurred on Thursday the 9th of December between 9.40pm and 10pm. So the homeowner reported that the front window of her home was smashed with a rock, and on further inspection, there was damage also observed to the rear window in the vehicle that was parked in the driveway, and the left rear tyre of the same vehicle was also smashed. So the homeowner was actually on her own with four young children in the house at that time. So we are appealing to anyone who may have seen any suspicious activity in the area to please call Ashburn Garda Station on 018010600. Okay, thank you indeed. Garda Stacey Wikes of Laytown Garda Station and we'll return to the Garda Crime Desk in around the same time on next Tuesday's programme. Now, before we leave you today, let me bring you some more of the comments that have been coming to us. A listener in touch on WhatsApp to say... These walk-in booster clinics are for people who don't have a job and don't have to work around regular working hours. They say they couldn't leave their job during the day to go for a booster. Thank you indeed. And I suppose there were some people uh, who uh, may be in the same position who tried to do it on Saturday in Nathan and found it was impossible because there were so many people in the same boat. And R.D., listener in touch to say they got a text from their doctor last Friday to inform them that their booster was available our caller rang to confirm the appointment for this Thursday and he says it'll be half an hour in total this is the way that everyone should get their vaccine 
Thank you indeed uh, for that. Uh, I think uh, they're trying to take a, a twin approach to it uh, so that there would be appointments and walk-in clinics so that they can get through as many people as possible. Uh, whether they could improve on that uh, is another day's work and I think there's probably a lot of people uh, from uh, their own experience who say they could improve on it quite a lot. But then we have heard of people uh, who've walked in off the street and got vaccinated with no waiting time at all. Lorraine is in Navin and Lorraine was in touch with us and she says that with uh, the threat from Omicron hanging over us, would we not be better off uh, to let children finish up uh, for the Christmas holidays early this year? What difference would it make to their education if they finished on Friday? Uh, instead of next week. Well, that's uh, one that maybe the kids would uh, support. Uh, It's not uh, uh, something that the government uh, seems to be uh, in favour of, uh, Lorraine, uh, but uh, I think uh, there's a lot of people uh, who would see the sense or would see the logic in uh, the argument that you're making. Uh, But thanks uh, for making it with us today. That has to be the final comment on our programme today because our time, once again, has run out on us and that's where we come to the end of another programme. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style.